this morning as we uh, really get into uh, this morning's sermon, uh, as, you, as I said last week, we're going to be starting a series through Advent or Christmas, however you want to word that. Uh, and apparently we're going to have one extra one that I did not uh, consider because we're not going to do the baby dedication. So we'll have one extra one this year. Uh, but that's okay. But uh, if you would turn with me, I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be looking at 14 and 15. And if you're anything like most people, you're probably thinking, well, this isn't the most Christmassy verse. Um, especially when you turn there, you're going to see that. Uh, but Genesis chapter 3, 14 and 15, we're going to be really looking at uh, most of the chapter 3. Um, but before I get into that, and before we stand and read God's Word together, I really want to catch everyone up. If you were not able to be here this uh, last week, or if you were here, just a reminder to you, what we looked at was that Christ was promised at the foundation of the world. And really going through this topic of the times in which we see throughout Scripture that Christ was pro the promised Messiah. And so this week we're doing Christ was promised at the fall of man. Last week we did Christ was promised at the foundation of the world. And in that sermon we really just looked at two verses and it was 1 Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21 that says this, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for your uh, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And really, what we looked at in this sermon and what we looked at in this scripture is that God did not have, have to send Jesus to be born, but in his great love for his children and his own glory, he did so. And in doing so, Christ was born to the virgin, lived a perfect life, died the death we deserved, and was placed into the tomb, rose again three days later, and was ascended back into the heaven and in doing so those whom the father would draw to himself would be saved and the emphasis I made is this last sentence I want to read to you now I want to read to it a little slower is that this was plan a at the foundation of the world this was the plan of God there was no plan B, nor C, nor D through Z, that this was the plan of God from the foundation of the world. And in that we saw the great love of God made manifest because even though He knew we would sin, He chose to save us anyway. And this morning as we get into Genesis chapter 3, 14 and 15, we're going to look at it in just a moment, but what we're going to see is that this is one of the darkest moments in, in, in human history. And in this darkest moment in human history, there is a promise by God that brings the light in, that shines the light in. And as this last song just so elegantly put, that this light that shines from this lighthouse, which is Christ, shined straight into the darkest moment of human history and showed the mercy of God on display. And so if you would, let's turn to Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Let's stand together and let's read it aloud. It says this. To the serpent. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field and on the belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come now. We thank you for this day. 
God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather into your house and just worship with your children, our brothers, our sisters that have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for that opportunity. We pray now that if there may be any that is here, Father, that does not know you, that have never surrendered their life to you completely and followed after you and trusted in Christ for salvation, God, my prayer is simple that that would be today, the day that they have never found a moment for God, that this would be the day that you draw them to yourself. But regardless, God, take this moment and show us, reveal to our spirit the great love that we have and the fact that in the darkest moment in history, Father, you shined your light in. And that's exactly what you would do for each and every one of us that have come to you in salvation. God, take me, hide me behind your cross, hide me behind your word. God, let the words I say be from you and you alone. We love you, we praise you, we glorify you in the Son, in your Son's name. Amen. This morning as we look at this, as I said earlier, we're really going to be looking at this simple fact that Christ was promised at the fall of man. Now, uh, as last week was, that Christ was promised at the foundation of the world. And so it's really what we're going to see in these next four to five weeks, and this week including in that, is this continual promise of the Messiah to come. And, and it's a gracious thing that God would do such thing for us because we are... Uh, let's just let's, let's put it this way. God compares us to what animal when he talks about Christ, that Christ is the shepherd and we are the sheep. All right, and sheep, if you know anything about sheep, they're dumb creatures. Uh, and us as humans, sometimes we are forgetful just like sheep are. Sometimes we can be as smart as sheep is when it's reminded of God's grace and mercy towards us. So God throughout human history has painted this picture and, and, unworked, and worked through and painted his plan and worked his plan out. And he puts different reminders throughout scripture for us to look back to to see what the promise of the Messiah that was to come. Now, in the moment, it was for the people to look towards the Christ that was to come. And for us, it's to look back and to see the promise that God had made throughout history. And this morning, as we look at these verses, we're really going to start in verse 1. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to look at e each individual curse. The curse of uh, the serpent, the curse of the woman, the curse of man. And then we're going to go back to the curse of the serpent and kind of focus and camp there for the rest of the sermon. And I know this is familiar verses, but I want to read through verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7, if you want to look on with me, I would encourage you to, says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing God uh, good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a, good, was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave her to, some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then, and then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
All right, so this is a familiar verse. This is something we talk about regularly in our lives. This is something you learn growing up. This is something we teach our children. Uh, even in the, the storybook Bible that we have for our children, this is one of the first, this is the first one, I think. Uh, this is the second one, the first one's creation. And so what we see in this is this is a very common theme. This is something you would understand and know, but so often we don't really look at the heart of what's going on. We think of it as something a simple uh, situation in history that happened, but this was the darkest moment in history. This is the darkest moment in the human's life because there's so many things that are going on here that we are going to look at. And really, the first one we see is that the serpent twists God's truth. He twists the word of God. We see that in the fact that he tells the woman that you won't die, but you're, you're, you're simply be like God, that he's twisting what God is saying. This is something that still happens today. This is something that still occurs. This is something that um, really when you look at the issues that we have uh, among other portions of Christianity, it really uh, comes from this idea that we could take God's word and God's scripture and we can place it to mean what we want it to mean. That God's word isn't infallible. It isn't the true word of God. That it is a timely writing. It is a, it's a cultural writing that we have to adapt to our time and our culture. But in all reality, God's word is infallible. It is true. It is, it is, it is never changing. And so what we see in this is that the serpent, the first thing he does to this woman uh, in the garden is really the thing that he does to society today. And he twists the word of God to her. And in twisting the word of God to her, we see that she was deceived, that, that she saw that it was good for fruit, that it was pleasing to the eye and that it was good to make one wise. So what does she do? She takes it and she eats of it. And so often we as men, this is where we elbow our wives and we act like we would, have, we would have been, you know, it's the woman's fault, it's not the man's fault. But in all reality, we see that the man is a very passive man in the scripture. That it says at the bottom of verse 6, she took the fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. That her husband was with her when she took of the fruit and he ate it as well. That the man that was supposed to lead the family, that was supposed to be her example, that was supposed to, to guide her, was submissive and was passive in this moment. And he took and ate of it as well. And so in this, in this moment, we see that man and woman sins against God. Now, why is that the darkest moment? Because so often we don't think of sin as we really should. Because we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all make mistakes. We, we can't live through a day without having a, an un, uh, a thought that is wrong or an action that is wrong or thinking something we shouldn't. That so often in this life we think of sin as something that is natural to humanity. But in the creation of God it was not natural. That Adam and Eve lived in a perfect utopian garden where God walked with them each and every day because there was no sin. There was no error. There was no mistake. There was nothing that separated Adam and Eve from God. There was no sin at this point until Adam and Eve took and ate of the fruit. And the sin, though, though we so often we think of them eating of this fruit as the sin, and it kind of is, but really the sin is that they disobeyed God. They did, they did exactly what He told them not to do. That is the sin, that they rebelled and turned against Him. Now, this is the darkest moment in history. And why I say that is that you have certain scriptures uh, in the New Testament and Old, uh, specifically one in Romans 5.12, that tells us that in this moment of Adam and Eve sinning, what happened, and we're going to look at it, is that the sin of them was imputed unto the world. 
Romans 5.12 says it is the way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam and Eve, one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. That through Adam, the sin, sin has went into all creatures. Now, we like to push back against this. We like to, we like to push back in the fact that Adam is our representative. That, that how is this man that we've never met, how is this man that is thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, our representative as humanity? We push back on that on multiple levels. Uh, the main thing, that we, the main two what we do is that we assume first and foremost that we would have done it differently. That if we were Eve, if you're a woman, or if you were Adam, if you're a man, that you would not have ate of that tree. You would not have ate of that fruit. But in all reality, you would have done it just like they did it. And you would have maybe have done it quicker than they did it. Now, we don't know how long they were in the garden. But what we do know is that they sinned against God by doing this. We would have done the same thing. We would have sinned against God. There's no doubt in my mind. We see this throughout Scripture. We see this principle. And therefore, Adam is our representative because we would have done the same thing. And the second pushback we get on Adam being our representative is that we don't want somebody representing us. We want to be our own independent creatures. We want to handle ourselves and take care of ourselves, and not to be blamed for someone else's sin. But we definitely want God's redemption through Christ that's imputed upon us. We want His righteousness imputed upon our sin. We want the, the good things that we can receive because of somebody else being our representative. And so if we're going to take the representative that is Christ that can save us, we have to take the representative which is Adam that has brought sin into the world. And so first and foremost, we see that this is the darkest moment in human history because this is the moment not only did Adam and Eve sin against God, but this sin was imputed upon the entire world. And we see this in three different scriptures in Genesis. First, look at verses 14 and 15 with me once again. This is what we read aloud, but I'm going to look at it. It says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. And on the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That this is the curse of the serpent. We're going to start here because this is where Scripture starts, and then we're going to come back to it, specifically verse 15. But this is the curse of the serpent. And in this curse, we see some things that unfold. That God says that this is now a result of you sinning and, and leading and, and um, uh, tricking our, my creation. This is the curse that you're receiving. First, that you're, cu you're cursed uh, uh, above all livestock. That you're the worst creature there is. He's simply saying that all livestock, all animals, all of these other things that are better than you, that you are cursed below them, all of creation, all of life, that you are cursed, you are put below all other animals, that you would crawl on your belly, that you would roam on your belly, and then in that he says, I will eat and you will eat of dust. That this is part of the curse of the serpent, that he will be crushed, he will be destroyed, he will be put on his belly to roam the earth, defeated and eating of the dust. And then the last part, it says, an enmity between you and the woman. Now, I'm going to come back to this one later, so I'm not going to put it in extreme detail. But really, it's this idea that the, now there's this, there's this difference between uh, the serpent and the, um, 
the offspring of Eve. Now, so often when we think of this, we want to reflect and say, this is why we don't like snakes, and this is why there's this issue between man and snakes, and specifically women and snakes, and things of that nature. But really, this is pointing to Christ, that there's going to be this enmity between the offspring of Eve, which is talking and pointing to Jesus, that there's going to be this enmity between her and Christ, him and Christ, and in this enmity, in this battle, that the serpent's going to bruise the heel of the offspring, but the offspring's going to destroy him, and we're going to see that in some scriptures later on. And so the serpent is cursed for his rebellion against God. But then let's go to the woman and the man because that's more relative to us this morning. The curse of the woman found in verse 16, follow along with me, says, I will surely multiply your pain of childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, we see two things here, ultimately. We see a multiplied pain of childbirth and the desire to be over the husband, but, the, but will not be, that the husband will be over the wife. First and foremost, when we look at this pain of childbearing, and I know like Sarah's actually in here this morning, so she's probably like, I really don't want you talking about this. Um, but childbirth, it's, it's a painful thing. But what we see in this, I don't want us to be confused. It says multiplied pain of childbearing. That there would be pain in the first place. That, that it wasn't going to be this nice little situation where there would be no issues. It's a, there would be pain in this process of bearing children. But he's saying that multiplied, that he's made the pain worse in the bearing of children. But then he goes on, he says, desires to be over your husband, but he, she will not be. This is something we see in society today, too, that the, the, the woman, the wife, desires to be the head of the household. But what we see throughout Scripture, and it is plain and it is clear, is that the way that God is, is fixed the family institute is that the husband is the spiritual leader of the household and the wife is submissive to him, not in the, the, the husband does a dictatorship or does whatever he wants, but that he leads the family in the way that God would have for them. And this is the way that God has put the, the family structure into place. And in two weeks, next Sunday night, that's actually what we're going to look, like, look at in the Baptist faith and message. So come then, we'll look at it in more detail. But we see that these are the two issues with the curse of the woman. It multiplied childbearing and desiring to be over the husband, but the husband would be over her. And then the curse of the man. Let's, at it. Let's look at it real quick. 17 through 19. And Adam said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. But by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Really see three things here. Is the curse of the ground. The pain of manual labor. And the death will reign. Let's first and foremost, let's look at this idea of curse of the ground. That this is almost a picture of that there was four things that was cursed in the sin of man. It wasn't just the serpent. It wasn't just the woman. It wasn't just the man. But it was also the earth. It was the world that, that God, the curse of sin affected it as well. And now there is thorns and thistles that, that make the ground hard and difficult to toil and to, to plan and to deal with. And, and that's what he's saying is that you're going to have a multiplied issues with manual labor. You're going to have the curse of the ground that's going to cause you to have to work at the sweat of your brow and to have a difficult time working manually. Um, and I want us to be clear in this as well, is that he's not saying that work is the, the curse. 
Because in Genesis chapter 1, he tells the man to be fruitful and multiply and to tend to the garden. That the, the, the will and the desire of God for man at this point was to work in the garden, to take care of it, to work. And so work isn't the curse, work isn't the pain, work isn't the sorrow. But the sorrow and the pain is the difficulty that now would come with the work. Now the biggest and most significant thing in this is the last part of verse 19. It says, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That because of sin has come into the world through Adam and Eve, now death reigns. Now death is a reality. Now death is something that happens to all who are born in this earth. Now sickness and pain and sorrow and death now exist because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. That this is the result of sin. This is why this is such a dark moment in history in the world. Is because all of these things have happened and now the curse of the serpent, curse of the woman and curse of the man is imputed upon all who will live. Now death reigns. And when we read and understand this to its fullest, when we go back to verse 15, it is the most encouraging and most beautiful scriptures, I would say, in all of the Bible. Because in this darkest moment, in the first instance of sin entering into the world, we see a light of God's mercy on display. If you would look back at 15 with me, it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Specifically, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is pointing to Jesus. This is pointing to Christ. We're going to look at this in detail later. But this is this idea that Jesus was the one that was going to come and he would destroy the enemy. He would destroy the serpent. He would destroy sin, death, and the grave. And he would conquer it all. But in conquering it all, his heel would be bruised. Now, what we're going to look at later is how his heel was bruised and how we also see that he is victorious over the enemy. And there's great beauty in this. And this is why when we look at the Christmas time season, we have to look at the promises back of the Old Testament of what God was going to fulfill in Christ because we see the great love of God on display only three chapters in into the entire book of the Bible that sin entered the world in the midst of sin. God promises Christ. Oh, how beautiful that is for each and every one of us today. But first and foremost, let's, before we get into all of that, let's look at this offspring idea. This idea of the offspring is that they were looking for this now. Now that God says that there's this offspring that's going to come, He's going to destroy the enemy, and now throughout all of history they would begin to look for this offspring. And we do this too. We actually live in this society of Christianity where we look to the Old Testament as examples rather than looking to Christ as our only example because everyone in the Old Testament is sinful and fallen just like we are. The only one we can look to is Christ. But in each and every, every situation we see is that they were looking for this offspring, for this one that was to come. Even so much so that we see it in verse four, chapter 4 verse 1. Now Adam knew of his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and having gotten a man with the help of the Lord. 
that in this moment, she's out of the garden. They've cast it away. She, she begins to get pregnant. She, she's getting pregnant with Cain. She has Cain. And she says, I have had this man by the, the, by the power of God, the work of God, that God has provided this for me. And in and this moment, they would have thought that this was the offspring. This was the offspring that was going to redeem and save and provide and take care of them and redeem them from their sin and from their fallen nature. They, they was going to trust in this offspring. Now, I can read chapter 4, but I could ruin it for you. But we all know what happens with Cain, right? right? Cain kills Abel. And so they looked to Cain as this example, this offspring, the Messiah that was to come, this Redeemer that was to come, and not too long into his life, he sins just like his parents did. And then it goes a step farther. Then you get to Noah, and Noah is living in an age of sinfulness is above all else, and so much so that God desires to kill everyone, to start all over with Noah and his family. And what does Noah do when he gets off the boat? He gets drunk and he sins against God. And then it goes a step farther. You get to Abraham. And what does Abraham do? This picture of the Messiah that was to come. He sleeps with another woman because he listened to his wife rather than listening to God. And then Isaac does something very similar. And then Jacob and then Joseph and then Moses and Joshua and David. All of the judges, all of the prophets. Each and every one of them had sinned. And so each and every one of these people they were looking to as this, this, this offspring that was to come to save and redeem them, each and every one of them failed. But then this beautiful, beautiful moment happened when, as we read in the account in Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33, it begins like this. And behold, you will conceive in your room and hear and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be a great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom there will be no end. That this is the offspring that Jesus is the offspring promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. That the offspring of God, the one that was going to, to destroy the enemy, the offspring of Eve, the one to destroy the enemy, was going to come and He was promised in Luke chapter 1, 31-33. And this is the first picture of the perfect offspring that was to come. And the joy of this is that this offspring, He wouldn't kill His brother. He didn't sin. He didn't rebel against God. He didn't fall just like Adam and Eve did, though he was made completely man. He was a perfect in this life, that he was the true offspring. And because he was the true offspring, he was going to bruise the, the head of the serpent and destroy him. And we see that in John 19, 28 and 30, and then I'm going to read 40 and 42. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he asked, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his, life, his spirit. And then 40 and 42. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it, lion's cloth with all spices and in the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. 
that this was the moment where, where the, the hill of Jesus was bruised. Not only was it bruised, uh, let's just be honest, it was bruised whenever He stepped out of a perfect heaven into a fallen earth that He had, he had created perfect, but sin changed. But in the moment of His death, in the moment that He took His last breath, and they wrapped Him in cloth, just like He was wrapped in cloth as an infant, they wrapped Him in cloth, they laid Him in a tomb, and he, in this moment it appeared that He was dead. So much so that in the next scripture I'm going to read in John 20, that Mary thought he was dead and she went looking for him. And when she didn't find the body, she assumed that somebody had stole the body, that Jesus had died, that he was bruised. Just like God said would happen and you shall bruise his heel. But the story doesn't stop there. When we read John 20, 11 through 16, it says, but Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb And she wept. She stopped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head and one on the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, they turned around and they saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. That this was just a bruise because the moment of the resurrection of Christ happened. And in that moment, Satan was defeated. Sin was defeated. Death was defeated. Hell was defeated. In that moment, the promise of God in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the curses would be defeated by the one that became the first, was accomplished because he was bruised but not destroyed. This is Jesus. John, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the nativity scene looking forward. This is Advent at its fullest because it was pointing to the first coming of Christ. And thank God that coming happened. Thank God that not only was He born, but He died on the cross. And not only did He die on the cross, but He rose again. And in doing so, He conquered it all. This is why we celebrate Christmas. We don't celebrate Christmas to enjoy a nativity scene. We don't celebrate Christmas because of all of the festivities. We celebrate Christmas because this was the one that was born to the virgin that lived the life we couldn't, that died the death we deserved, that was laid in a tomb, rose again, and in doing that, conquered it all. And He is our only hope in death and life. He is our only joy in death and life. He is our only peace in death and life. So when we read this and we look at this, First and foremost, as we come to a conclusion, we have to conclude that Christ is the offspring to come. That in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is pointing to Jesus. It wasn't, it wasn't Cain. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't Cain. It wasn't Noah. It wasn't Abraham. It wasn't Isaac. It wasn't Jacob. It wasn't Joseph. It wasn't Moses, Joshua, David, any of the judges, any of the prophets. It was Jesus because Jesus was the only perfect man that have ever walked on this world. And in this life. And Christ is that promised offspring that was to come. And He stomped the devil out. He stomped sin out, death out. He stomped the grave out. And He won victory for those that would trust and believe upon Him. Thus, 
Not only was He promised to be the Savior of those that would trust in Him from the foundation of the world, but He was also in the darkest moment of human history that He was the promise of God. The moment of greatest distress, God rescues Adam and Eve, and He would send one that would redeem and save them. But not only them, but all that would have had faith in God throughout the old and the new, that through Christ Jesus, those are redeemed. Now, we come to the end of the sermon. I'm going to try to bring some application, some, some joy to us in this, that we, as we reflect on this, what does it mean for us? Well, first, we're no different than Adam and Eve. See, even though Adam and Eve sinned and that sin was imputed upon us and we were born into iniquity, we still choose to sin. We still choose to rebel and turn against God. And in our rebellion, in our rejection of God, that God still chose to save each and every one of us. God still chose to eliminate our heart and soften our heart through the Spirit of God that we may receive and follow and redeem, be redeemed by the blood of Christ. That in our sinfulness, in our rejection of Him, He would save us just as He promised this in the darkest moment of human history, in the darkest moment of Adam and Eve's life, that He would redeem them. He does the same for each and every one of us that have believed and trusted in Him that He saved us regardless of our sin, that we are not saved by any merit or any effort of our own, but of the merit and the trusting in the righteousness of Christ. And because He has saved us despite of our sin, we are to take the gospel to the world around us, that He is their only hope. Just like He's our only hope in life and death, He, he is their only hope in life and death. So we take the gospel to our friends, to our workers, to our neighbors, to our, our co-workers, to, our, to whoever we may encounter. Because He is the only hope in life and death, we take the gospel to a tribe that will never hear the name of Jesus. Because He has the only hope in life and death, we go and we break law so that people could hear the name of Jesus, that people would die for the name of Christ, that we take the world out to take the gospel to the world, not only in our context, but in the context of the entire world. And this is the Christmas offering. This is what we are giving to in IMB and the Allotted Moon Christmas offering. And so that the gospel would go all the way around the world, that this is what we must do as believers. There's no question about it. So often we, well, I think we think that sharing the gospel is by choice or something we do if we have time or if we desire to, but sharing the gospel comes with the nature of Christ. And if you're not adamantly seeking an opportunity or desiring or, or trying to understand how to share the gospel, maybe you should question something or maybe you should seek help. So we are saved despite of our sins, and we, because we are saved despite of our sins, thus we share the gospel of the world around us. We are willing to lay our life down for the name of Jesus. And last thing, I'm not a very cliche person. I don't like a lot of things that are real cliche. One of those, and I know I may, some of y'all may disagree with me, but there's something that's very cliche nowadays, and uh, it's the statement that Jesus is the reason for the season. And He is, don't get me wrong, He's exactly that. He's exactly, exactly, exactly that. And I, I start by saying I don't like cliche things to say it this morning that Jesus is exactly the reason for the season. Jesus is exactly why we celebrate Christmas. Jesus is exactly why, for whatever reason, we decided to do it on December the 25th in our history. This is exactly why we celebrate Christ in the time of Christmas. Is Jesus what He was born to do, what He died to do, and the salvation we have in Him. 
Christmas is about nothing else besides Christ. Now, there's great history. There's great uh, things we can do in celebrating him. There's moments that we had spent with family and loved ones. Yes, all of that is true. But Christmas in the Advent season is about Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, is not only is Advent about Jesus, but our life is about Jesus. That we are to live our life in the light of the gospel each and every day. So not only is December about Jesus, but so is January through November. That every day of our life should be living in the light of Advent even in the light of the first coming of Christ and looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Thus, we not only celebrate Christ now, but throughout the year, but in this specific moment, let us celebrate and glorify God for the redemption that we have in Christ. We are people that can stand and sing and praise God because we have been redeemed by God. If you haven't been redeemed by God, if you haven't, if you don't know what to celebrate, if you don't know how to celebrate because you've never surrendered your life to Christ and been redeemed by the blood of Christ after God has called you to himself, then I would encourage you today be the day that God would call and you would respond. I pray that I seek that I, I implore that this morning. And as they come and lead us into this last song, go ahead and come. I want to take the opportunity. I want to pray one last time for us.